Grace, mercy, and the peace of our God, who is greater than all that we can ask or imagine or even understand. This morning we begin a new series as we look at the book of Hebrews um, that we're calling Greater Than, because as the first part begins with Jesus being greater than, uh, particularly angels, The book continues to be comparative of Jesus against other things or of salvation found in Jesus, of God's grace in Jesus being greater than everything else. There are parts of the book of Hebrews that pick that tone up that Jesus is greater than, greater than a a math term. You can imagine it, right, with the the kind of angle, right, that this is greater than that. But greater than is also a a language that we use from time to time, comparative of one thing versus another. So Hebrews really serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament in terms of our understanding because it's targeted at people who had been infused with this Old Testament paradigm, the first covenant And we're going to talk a bit about what that is versus the new covenant and how God is at work in Jesus. So it begins with these great words that in many times in various ways, God has spoken to us by the prophets. But now, in these last days, he speaks to us in his son. That the son comes in and speaks to us in a direct way as opposed to the way the prophets have spoken to us in many times, in various places, et cetera, et cetera. And that's greater than, right? So the message of this book starts with God's greater purpose in communicating through his son, that this greater salvation that we receive is through the son. And so today, as we talk about the superiority of Christ, we're going to do that with a good, better, best framework. Good, better, and best. Just yesterday was the first marching band competition for Milpitas High School in a year and a half. No, longer than that. Almost two years. Um, And they did great, so that was really fun. It was a long day and a lot of work to get them there and to get all their stuff there and to do everything for the, like, eight minutes that they're on the field. (laughs) But it was worth it, and it was fantastic. But at the end, there's an awards ceremony, and um, they have trophies, right? So there's a third-place trophy. That's good. Second-place trophy, that's better. First-place trophy, you're the best. We understand that language, right? We understand good, better, and best because it's kind of infused into a lot of things that we do, whether it's third-place, second-place, first-place, or, you know, different color ribbons, or the way we compare all kinds of things we do, all kinds of opportunities we have. A lot of ways this framework is kind of just built into our heads. So we'll begin with good. What's good? We try to do good, right? I'm thinking of good. This is a way that we 
automatically understand our first covenant paradigm. And the first covenant was with Abraham, and there's a couple of places in Exodus where God says, listen to my voice, obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And so we get this idea that obedience is how we participate in the covenant of God. And there's some truth in that. You know, God's people, Israel, were directed to do certain things and carry out particularly the the circumcision side of the covenant, but then there's all kinds of other things that follow that. So we aim for good, or at least good enough. (laughs) The rich young man in Mark chapter 10 is in that paradigm still when he comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do? What must I do? That's a good enough paradigm. That's a good enough expectation. There's something I can do, some way I can achieve. And we understand that, and we can fall into that very easily. What must I do? What must I accomplish? What's the, where's the bar, right, that I have to, I have to get past? Is it set low? Is it high? Where is it? Jesus knows that he's in this Old Testament, Old Covenant mindset. And the man believes that he's good enough. Because Jesus says, well, if you're talking about doing, what are the commandments? You know? And then the young man says, all these I have done since my youth. Really? <laughs> like completely, 100% of the time? Because the way I read them, I can recognize that all these I have broken since my youth, that's for sure. But he's ready to justify himself. So next, Jesus aims at his heart, his priority, his God. He's a rich young man, the way the heading reads, and we understand that from the very last part of that. That he goes away sad because he had great wealth, because Jesus challenges him, go sell what you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. So Jesus aims right at his heart that what you're doing and this accomplishment idea, while you might be aiming at good enough, you need to aim at perfection. Because there's not good enough in us. Sometimes we use that comparative idea, even in terms of who God is going to like. Well, I've never done that. I'm not like those people who behave in those ways. And, And so we get this idea, and it's, It's just kind of stuck in there, right? In our minds, in our thoughts, and even in our kind of cultural expression of who God is and who God will bless and who God will love. We need to understand this, though, that God is good. The young man comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, and Jesus right away... His first words to the man, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. God is good. Now, under the old covenant, under the law, sometimes it doesn't seem that way. People see God as judgmental, as ready to punish, that we're sinners in the hands of an angry God, which is a very narrow view of God and his judgment. In fact, in Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So we see God sometimes as, as ready to judge, ready to condemn, ready to punish. Looking narrowly at that. Missing the holiness of God and the perfection of God and that the sin of man can't and, and shouldn't be tolerated. So God's goodness is displayed in his creative power. And Hebrews 1 has those words at verse 3. The sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. It also talks about God's goodness in the redemptive work of Jesus. Verse 3 goes on to say, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is who God is, the creator, the savior, the sustainer of us and of life. So the death of Jesus on the cross for sinners like us proves God's goodness. Because when we look at the narrow judgment law side of God, that might seem like God isn't good, but what we need to see is the whole picture that Jesus came, that God sent his son. So that that perfection, though we could not attain it, that that goodness of God overflows to us by his grace alone. That's good. And it's better. It gets better. As a kid, I remember hearing that, hearing an expression, we, you should know better. <laughs> remember hearing that? You know better, or not you should know better, but maybe you do. You know better. Maybe you've used that before. We know what to do. We know what is good. But the problem is, we can't attain it. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. We know better. We try to do good, right? And we know better. And yet, long, along with the Apostle Paul, we find ourselves there. That we can't do the good we want to do. It's a struggle. We know better than to respond with the young man and say, all these I've kept from my youth. Because the 
commandments of God reflect like a mirror and show us ourselves, our sinfulness, our condition, our guilt. And so even though we know better, we need Jesus to make us better, to make us good through his sacrifice. And so we better pay attention. Those words are in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, and we heard those this morning. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This book was written, it's um, understood, though it's, there's not a, a statement of who wrote it, um, so it's a mystery, and, um, but it's, it's targeted toward people, like we've mentioned, who are um, in the Old Testament, Old Covenant mindset. Well, that's why it's called Hebrews. Because it's written to people who understand the law of God, the Old Testament covenant, those practices with this history steeped in a culture, in a thought pattern, in a life that was organized in, in the way of the Old Covenant. There's influences on the audience who are the recipients of this work. Cultural influences, community influence, even family influences. Talking to Kip and Ivy who serve in Asia, in a country that's um, very much dominated by Muslim uh, religion. And so, you know, kind of countrywide. This is the culture. There's mosques all over the place. And there are pockets of Christians, but in that community, that's not uh, encouraged or supported. They don't have that kind of freedom. And so they'll tell stories about people whom they've known, who have received Christ, but their family or their culture or their job or these other influences draw them back. And so they turn away from Jesus because of these other things. And so this is similar to how Hebrews is is aiming. For people who are being pulled away from Jesus because of other things, their own history, their own understanding, or maybe their family, maybe their friends. We don't know all the influences that people were having. But I can imagine it being very difficult for people, especially in the first century. This is new stuff. They didn't have 2,000 years of history of church, of, you know, the gospel saturating the world. They had maybe a few years, maybe a few decades. And so these other cultural influences and these other things that are pulling them back and maybe even other teachings, the emphasis that we can see on angels in these first couple of chapters can infer that there were people saying, ah, you know, well, like Lori mentioned with the, the um, youth message, that Jesus was, ah, he was an angel. He wasn't an incarnate son of God. He was something else. And so the writing is to suggest, no, he wasn't an angel. He was made lower than the angels, but that's not who he is now. So we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. So what have we heard? 
the writer of Hebrews goes on to say a message that was declared first by the Lord and then attested to by those who heard. So Jesus shared the message. The apostles took that message out into communities, into the known world of the time, and it was accompanied by signs and wonders. That's the message, the gospel of Jesus, the salvation of God, and that is the best. That's greater than anything else we can know or understand, and so that's the theme of this whole series, that Jesus is the best. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, it's a bit of a long reading, but it says this. It has been testified somewhere, that somewhere happens to be Psalm 84, but the writer of Hebrews didn't, um, didn't insert that. Th- there weren't numbers at the time, so he would have said in the Psalms, or the psalmist wrote, but he said somewhere. It's Psalm 84 if you want to look it up. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Psalm 84 here is describing the creation of people. What is man that you are mindful of him? That God is paying attention to you and to me as human beings. Like, Who are we that God, that the almighty God of the universe would even pay attention to us? So it's talking about the creation of people and the relationship that we have with God. And it's also anticipating Jesus at the same time. Talking about the glory and honor of creation, of man at creation as the pinnacle, the top of the food chain, if you want to think of it that way. Right? But then of Jesus crowned with glory and honor. So there's a bit of a double meaning here, the way that we understand Psalm 84, particularly through what the writer of Hebrews said. Putting everything under his feet at creation, there was dominion over all of creation. That God said to man, be fruitful and multiply. Take care of this that I've created for you. And of Jesus, of course, dominion over all of creation for the Son of God is how we understand him. Hebrews reminds us that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. It goes on to say this. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Because of the suffering of death through his crucifixion, that he might taste death for everyone so that we don't face death in the way that we otherwise would. The death for us isn't something that we fear in the same way we would if it weren't for the grace of Jesus. This Jesus, who is greater than anything in all of creation, greater than angels, greater than us, this Jesus 
has given us the best, and the best is yet to come. Faith in Jesus assures us of salvation, of forgiveness, of peace with God. He's the only source for these things, and he's returning crowned with glory and honor, and we get to be with him forever. So the grace of Christ, the one who is greater than, is far superior to anything else we can have. It's the best.